0: The first quarter of the investing year is in the books. Motley full Money starts now.
1: Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money.
0: This is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Matt Argusinger and Ron Gross. Good to see you both, gentlemen. How you doing, hey, Chris. Chris? We got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Brad Stone from Bloomberg is our guest, and as always, we got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with the big macro: the latest inflation data, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index. Say that three times. Yeah. Us, no, thank you. Showed an increase of 0.3% in February this is one more data point that the Federal Reserve is watching closely as they decide whether to raise interest rates again or not. This also coincided with the end of the first quarter of the year for investors. The Dow basically flat year-to-date, S&P 500 up around 7%. NASDAQ up around 17%, Ron. Coming into the year, if you told me that's where we'd be at this point, I think I would have been thrilled. But with all of the bank drama earlier this month, it doesn't seem as good as the numbers would indicate,:
2: Yeah, well, we can uh, get to the macro stuff in, in a minute, but I w- yeah, I agree. I want to talk about about the markets and the performance because it does not feel to me like we're in any kind of a strong market, right? It's it, January was strong, February was weak, March we had a banking crisis. <laughs> But yet, March then actually ended up kind of strong. It's been all over the place in terms of volatility. And I think, rather than the the, the graph being up and to the right, we haven't felt that way. And that's perhaps why, when I noticed that the NASDAQ was up, as you said, 17%, I was like, wow! Now, of course, tech was crushed last year. And so we we did get some sort of a rebound, but we're getting a rebound in a rising interest rate environment, which I wouldn't have necessarily predicted that. So, you know, people may be feeling somewhat good about their investments, but I think they're still feeling very shaky about the economy. And as we discussed in previous shows, anything with the word contagion in it is really kind of on the dicey side and creates quite a bit of anxiety. I I agree. I mean, it's been such a
3: roller coaster. I mean, I feel like we've lived a year in this first quarter. I mean, inflation's been persistent. The Fed's been relentless. We've got recession fears. We've had mass layoffs in the tech sector, which keep coming. And Disney's the latest, not really a tech company, but... We've had the biggest bank failure since the global financial crisis, and, of course, this regional banking crisis. And we've got these problems in the commercial real estate market that we should also talk about. But the fact that we're, we are where we are is pretty impressive. I mean, if you'd been an investor who'd sat on the beach since the beginning of the year <laughs> and didn't check your phone, as, as you said, Ron and Chris, it's like, well, you're, you're feeling pretty good. But then
1: you're not feeling good. <laughs> <laughs> but then you feel good again. Well, then you I kind of feel up. good again.
2: And, and the economic numbers are interesting. So, we are seeing a slowdown in the economy. We are seeing inflation come down. But slowly, it's taken a while. And that's why I don't think we're done quite yet with interest rate increases. You know, predictions, you're you're bound to be wrong, but probably one more, then some stagnation, and then, at some point, declining interest rates, which I'm looking forward to. Um, But, you know, what is What the Fed is trying to do is happening. It's just that job market is is still very strong. We need it to continue to be a little bit weaker. We did see that in the jobless numbers, but it's just taking some time.
0: Maddie, I want to go back to the layoffs that you mentioned, because this week, we got two more tech companies based in Silicon Valley, Electronic Arts and Roku. They're both laying off 6% of their employees. They're downsizing their office space. And I understand the argument of people who say, well, the tech sector, that's not the whole economy. There's a, a much bigger part of the economy beyond the tech companies in Silicon Valley. And that's true. But when you look at Silicon Valley, it's hard for me, with all of these announcements, not to start thinking about the ripple effects, particularly when it comes to commercial real estate.
3: No, that's exactly right. And you know, if, if you look at the, uh, the, according to data from the San Francisco Chronicle, The current office vacancy rate, I was shocked when I saw this, the current office vacancy rate in downtown San Francisco is 29.4%. Wow. That in commercial real estate land is a depression. Um, It's eight times the vacancy rate uh, pre-pandemic. And you can compare that to the New York City vacancy rate, which has also been hit pretty hard. It's at 16%. But either way, the point here is Yeah, Silicon Valley's been hit extra hard, but there's a bigger story here about commercial real estate, especially office. Vacancy rates are way high. We're in this new era of work from home or hybrid work where, no matter what, corporations just need less space. And the problem is... Silicon Valley Bank and others, it it was a little bit of a harbinger for what I think could be a pretty big problem with commercial real estate lending. If you look at the regional banks, according to some data, 80% of the lending uh, to the commercial real estate market comes from these regional banks. Ask any bank whether they're excited about refinancing an office building right
4: now,
2: <laughs> especially with debt that's maturing in the in the next few years, and it gets really dicey. Well, that, and that could give the Fed some cover to, to slow interest rate increases qu- more quickly than they might have done otherwise. But it's it's hard to hope for that. It's hard, it's hard to hope for a shock to the economy such that the Fed can slow down. Uh, as I've said before, you know, choose your poison. Uh, hopefully, the. The crisis won't be too bad, and the Fed will be able to lighten up relatively soon, and we can all move forward.
0: So, we're about to enter in the near term, let's just call it a three-week period, where earnings season is in the past. The next earnings season is coming up, starting in about three weeks. Um, what, I'll start with you, Matt, what are you going to be watching over the next couple of weeks? And let's just, you know put aside the possibility of another bank story <laughs> coming <laughs> forward and adding to the drama. What are you going to be watching to sort of give you an indication? Because it seems like part of what we've been talking about fits the narrative that we've been talking about for a few months now, which is the second half of 2023 appears to be set up for some positivity. Again, even keeping in mind what the market has done year to date, but over the next few weeks, what are you going to be watching?
3: This is that period where I think companies, if they're if, if, if there have been major changes to their business outlook, this is where guidance starts to come in. You know, a company will warn about their quarter, they'll try to get ahead of the news. And I've got a whole list of real estate investment trusts, by the way, <laughs> that I'm looking for for guidance, because I'm worried about, especially in the office spaces we've talked about, I'm worried about what that business looks like in terms of occupancy rates, uh, you know, net operating income. It's just, it's it's getting dicey. And I think that could tell a bigger story about the overall economy. So, that's kind of where I'm, I'm watching.
0: Ryan, what are you going to be watching?
2: Yeah. I I was going to say guidance, and also, I want to see what what margins look like, because I want, especially with retailers, I want to understand what kind of discounting and promotional activity is happening, and uh, what pricing power looks like, how much control they have over pricing. And I also want to look at inventory levels, because they're too high in in a lot of different sectors as a result of weakness in the business, so I want to see if that inventory bleeds off.
0: This week, Disney began the process of laying off 7,000 employees. Included in the group is the 50 people who make up Disney's entire division focused on the metaverse. It's being seen as another move by CEO Bob Iger to reverse decisions made by former CEO Bob Chapek. And Matt, we were talking about this earlier. I have to believe that a company like Meta Platforms, which is heavily invested in the metaverse, is not happy to see. A company like Disney, with all of that intellectual property, just shutting this whole thing down.
3: I I agree. I don't think that's a. It's it's a good news item if you're if you're a Meta, Facebook. (laughs) But I, I don't think this is yet a larger indictment on the idea of the metaverse. I think this is more about Iger just axing anything that he didn't create, so he's just, you know, he's kind of ru- running roughshod over everything Chapek kind of created. It reminds me a little bit of, of Disney Interactive Studios, which was a video game subsidiary that uh, that uh, Michael Eisner actually started before Bob Iger got there. And Bob Iger ended up killing that, too, because it lost a ton of money. It could never really compete with the larger video game publishers. And they, Iger eventually said, you know, we're just better at licensing our IP to... Companies like Sony and Activision, rather than trying to make our own games. So I, I think I don't think this is Disney shutting things off. I think I think they're saying let's wait for this market to mature. We're gonna if if it's a viable media universe, we're gonna get our IP in front of it. And maybe this this Apple news coming down this year might catalyze the metaverse to the way that Disney could actually start getting involved.
2: Yeah, I think the metaverse does kind of make sense for a company like Disney. Eventually, oh, yeah. Eventually, right? Oh, yeah. Chapek called it the next great storytelling frontier. I can see that. That that doesn't seem silly to me. And, uh, again, connecting the physical and digital worlds, again, for a company like Disney, I think that makes sense. Interestingly, Iger is not necessarily a metaverse skeptic. I believe he sits on the board of a startup called Genies, which is a, a company that helps users create avatars, which eventually are... are going to be used in the metaverse. so Maybe down the road, we'll, we'll get back there.
0: After the break, we've got the latest reminder that not every acquisition ends up working out. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Matt Argersinger and Ron Gross. Three years ago, Lululemon made its first acquisition ever when it paid $500 million for Mirror, a virtual home fitness company. In December of 2020, on our Year in Review episode, Ron picked the Mirror acquisition as his choice for the dumbest investment of 2020, <laughs> saying he was not a fan of the acquisition and comparing it to Under Armour buying My Pal for $475 million and selling it years later at a loss. This week, shares of Lululemon were up 15% after strong fourth-quarter results. Ron, anything else in that fourth-quarter report of interest?
2: <laughs> I don't like to toot my own horn, Chris, but they, uh, they did have an impairment of about $443 million out of the 500. So, just to review, they paid $500 million and they
0: just wrote down, let's just call it, 88% of it that is,
2: what happened? (laughs) Nice call, Ron. (laughs) Nice call. Thank you. They're not abandoning um, the fitness, the fitness market. They're going to pursue it in a non-hardware way with with a more app-focused strategy, which probably makes sense. And and if they had done that in the first place, I wouldn't have had to be critical (laughs) in the first place. But I do want to say that shouldn't take away from The strength of Lulu's business. Yes, that's a mistake. Okay, fine. But this has been a really wonderful business, a really wonderful stock. um, And the numbers back up the fact that they are continuing to execute quite well. Uh, For the quarter, revenue up 30%. That's 29% in North America and 35% internationally. Comp sales up 27%. Direct-to-consumer up 37%. Uh, Now, gross margins were down. We're still seeing some markdowns uh, that are necessary to clear some inventory out, but in general, you saw very nice control of expenses with operating margins actually up slightly, 50 basis points, not slightly, half a, half a percent, um, and adjusted earnings as a result were up 30%. So, they're continuing to get it done. They're doing a good job bringing inventories down. They're still high, but they're getting, getting them down over time, um, and they gave strong first quarter and full-year guidance, trading at 30 times, a premium price, but a premium company as well. Walgreens' second
0: quarter profits and revenue came in higher than Wall Street was expecting. CEO Ross Brewer highlighted the company's closing of its acquisition of Summit Health, saying Walgreens is now one of the largest players in primary care. Shares of Walgreens up more than 5% this week, Matt.
3: Yeah, yeah, good results. And if you look at their core pharmacy business, the uh, same-store pharmacy sales there were up almost 5%, really strong. And then if you look at the U.S. health care revenue, which is this Summit Health is joining on a pro forma basis of 30% uh, year over year. That's pretty strong. But my question is, you know, will the real Walgreens please stand up? I mean, th- because there's just <laughs> been so many moving parts to this company. If you look at the, the $5 billion majority investment they made in Village MD back in 2021, uh, majority investments in companies like Shields and Carecentrics. Then you've got the $5 Walgreens paid last fall to settle lawsuits uh, you know, related to its distribution of opioids over the years. Then you've got the $9 billion purchase. Of Summit Health. I mean, this has all happened within the past two years. And, you know, the stock has, has underperformed pretty starkly. It's it's down, it's lost about a third of, third of its value over the last five years. So I just, I just think if you're an investor looking at Walgreens, you got to let the dust settle on all these major capital moves, figure out, you know, how this U.S. healthcare revenue business is going to work. And then you can kind of decide if you want to invest in the stock. But to me, there's just too many moving parts right now.
0: Yeah, it does seem like with all those acquisitions, uh, it's it if you're looking at this, if you're the board of directors, you're saying to Ross Brewer, like, OK, yeah. now let's put all of this stuff to work. Right. Let's just give it some time to bake, <laughs> and then we can decide you know, how to move forward. The struggles continue for RH. Fourth quarter profits and revenue came in lower than expected for the company formerly known as Restoration Hardware. Shares of RH up a bit this week, Ron, but the last year and a half has really been
2: rough. Stock was at 700, and now we're around Um, 238-ish. Really been smacked. I don't want to hit a company necessarily only when it's down. For years, this was a wonderful investment, one of the best performing stocks, really, that we would talk about. Um, but they have fallen on hard times right now, and CEO Gary Feldman kind of went on a rant. I don't know how else to describe it on the conference call, blaming the Fed, inflation, interest rates, the banking crisis, all of those things for a decline in the luxury housing market, and. That kind of might be true, but ranting is really never a great look for a CEO. Um, so a, a little bit of restraint there, I think, would would have been uh, the better part of valor. But the business is quite weak, with revenue down 15%, gross margins down, operating margins down 960 basis points. That's 9.6 percentage points, which is really, really weak. Um, earnings down 14%. But if we adjust for some benefits, some income tax benefits, earnings were actually down 49%. Inventory way up as they're having trouble selling things in this environment. Um, so, they're they're doing what they can. They're eliminating el- eliminating some jobs. They're trying to uh, achieve cost savings of about $50 million annually. Guidance was weak. Um, you know, one thing that they always say, and I d- really don't like this, they say things like, the market opportunity is 7 to $10 trillion. And if we only get 1%, Chris, <laughs> that's a $70 billion to $100 billion opportunity. I do not like to hear that kind of talk um, from management teams um, as, as an investor, as an analyst. That, that doesn't thrill me. Um, they'll, they'll get back to business once the, the market firms, um, but they are spread really thin with hospitality and housing and and galleries. They may want to stick a little bit more to their knitting.
0: Shares of McCormick up nearly 15% this week after first quarter profits came in higher than expected. The spice maker also reaffirmed guidance for the full fiscal year. Matt, what stood out to you in McCormick's report?
1: Well,
3: it's it's the strength of their uh, flavor solution segment, which is their commercial food segment. You know that serves uh, you know restaurants and other major food uh, manufacturers. I, I, the beauty, I think, of McCormick is really you've got this great balance between the retail and consumer-facing side, which makes up about sixty percent of sales, and this commercial business, which makes up about forty percent. So during the pandemic, as you know, people were at home; they cooked more, and people cooked. You know, predominantly for the first time in their life. McCormick did really well with their consumer segment. Now that people are going back to restaurants and going out more, that the commercial side of the business is, is picking up the slack, where the consumer bias is slowing down a little bit. So It's just got this really great balance. And, of course, you've got a, a dividend that continues to grow very nicely. I just think McCormick always seems to trade but with such a huge premium in its shares right now, it's thirty-two times earnings. Now it's always traded for a premium, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna quibble. But I would just say, gosh, if you could ever get this business cheap, which is rare, it'd be quite an opportunity.
2: From from memory, I think they're also pretty good at acquisitions. Right, Cholula was an acquisition I think made really good sense. Some other some other Frank's as, Red Hot. Well, Frank's Red Hot. I I like these acquisitions, and I often don't like acquisitions that companies make. I wonder if they have something else up their sleeve coming up.
0: How seriously do you take the expiration date on spices? That's one of those things where it's like <laughs> I pay. I look, for medicine, I'm taking that very seriously. For spices, I'm like, really?
2: Is, I, I have to buy a whole new bottle. They do say if it's been sitting in your cabinet for like more than six months or so, that the flavor kind of goes away. But I think you can, get, you can get away with it. All right,
0: Matt Argusinger, Ron Gross, guys. We'll see you a little bit later in the show. Up next, is Jeff Bezos preparing a comeback to his former job at Amazon? Bloomberg senior tech reporter Brad Stone weighs in. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Brad Stone is the head of global technology coverage for Bloomberg News. He is also the author of several best-selling books, including Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos, and the Invention of a Global Empire. He joins me now from California. Brad, always good talking to you. Thanks for being here. Hi, Chris. Good to be here. Let's start with Amazon um, CEO Andy Jassy has announced a couple of rounds of layoffs over the past few months. Twenty-eight thousand jobs, which is a small percentage of the overall workforce at Amazon, but it's also a population that is bigger than a lot of towns in the United States. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on the way Jassy and his team are approaching this because there are certainly those who think if you're going to do layoffs, you only want to do it once. and. They've done it twice and it's I don't think it's gonna surprise a lot of people if there's a third round later this year. Right. Yeah. No the the number
4: might be relatively small, but the significance is high. Amazon has been in growth mode for most of its thirty years. I can point to a, a couple of years uh, during the dot-com bust, where they had some layoffs um, and 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 slowed hiring, but essentially things have been up and to the right. Now, you know, Jassy has had to deal with some pretty extraordinary circumstances, not just the pandemic and then the resulting slowdown in e-commerce, but arguably the kind of Jeff Bezos-led overbuilding that preceded the pandemic. And I think he's been in adjustment mode, course correction mode. I also think that you know the uh, in inflation. Has thrown another variable into the mix and probably also a declining stock price down what 30% over the last 12 months, maybe more. And, and Jassy probably catering a little bit to to shareholders, to investors, to try to right the ship and change the sentiment around Amazon. To your point, it hasn't been handled as elegantly as possible. You know, the idea that the the latest thing is that they were stopping construction on the second phase of HQ2 is a you know another black eye for a company and a process that was viewed very skeptically by a lot of people for a long
0: time. So this is. The handpicked successor of Jeff Bezos. How happy do you think Bezos is with the overall job that Jassy has done for the last couple of years?
4: My belief is that if if Bezos is doing a full accounting here. Then he probably, you know, a lot of the things that have gone wrong over the last two years can't really be laid at Jassy's feet. I think he would have to look at some decisions that he made uh, himself over the past five years. Like, let's look um, specifically at what Amazon has cut back on or stopped doing over the past uh, in the past two rounds of layoffs. A lot of the physical retail, the Amazon Go stores, the bookstores, those four-star stores—you know—that was a Bezos-led initiative. He was pushing the company into into physical retail and experimenting, and they've rolled it back. Kind of didn't work. Um, the devices business, um, Alexa. Alexa was it originated envisioned, and orchestrated by Bezos himself. And it was an idea that Amazon could be the front edge in AI, and that conversational assistants were the way that people would would interact with chatbots. And now, over the past few months, we've seen that that may not be true, that there's this technology called ChatGPT that is much more interesting than Alexa. It'll be interesting how Amazon pivots there. But they've had to They've certainly had to take account of that. And then everything in the fulfillment centers, Amazon subleasing out space that it bought and didn't need, you know, that's a lot of so so I guess my answer is um I, I my guess is that Bezos isn't second guessing Jassy. Um my my view is that he's probably not as involved even as maybe Jassy and the other board members might have hoped, that
0: Bezos has really moved on, and that this is firmly Andy Jassy's company. So the Speculation that he might pull a Bob Iger, pull a Howard Schultz, and come back for another run as CEO—you're not betting on that. It's fanciful. Uh, he he has moved on. the The
4: name of the yacht, the super yacht, Chris, you might remember. The yacht is called Koru, and it means re- reinvention. And that's what Bezos has done right in front of our very eyes, <laughs> physically. Uh, uh romantically and lifestyle wise and he has moved on he, he we may find out soon that he bid for the Washington commanders that process is ongoing as we speak um he has bought property in hawaii he has got the the yacht now um he is is fully involved in his climate philanthropy um he's got a set of headaches to deal with at the washington post so no i don't uh he's not one to revisit Previous decisions. If anything, if you were, if you were to ask me to guess, I would, I would say that we'd we'd be more likely to see him drop the executive uh, title in in his role as executive chairman. That much likelier than to see him return to day to day operations at Amazon.
0: Well, since I'm coming to you from the greater Washington D.C. area, and it is a regular topic of conversation in these parts with. The expectation that Dan Snyder is going to sell his NFL team. How serious do you think Bezos is about becoming an NFL owner?
4: I think he he's serious. There's there's enough smoke here. I mean, we know that he hired Allen and Company. The I think the New York Post reported that. We know that Snyder at least early on, blocked him from bidding because of enmity around the post-coverage of Snyder's tenure as owner. Um, we don't know if that's still true. I'm sure he would love Bezos to bid it up a little bit. And and I don't know if if Bezos has come back to the table after being rebuffed. But you know, all this indicates to me that he sees this as another fun adventure for him to have in this stage in his career. So, I think if it's not the commanders, it's likely that uh, when the, when the Seattle uh, Seahawks comes through the state process that it's currently in, that he could be a bidder for that team. I, I definitely think he's interested.
0: Earlier this week, Alibaba announced it's going to be splitting itself into six separate companies. Uh, how seriously do you think companies like Amazon and Alphabet are considering some version of a similar move, if they are even considering it at all? Yeah. Well, let me take
4: Amazon, because Alphabet does not necessarily as much in my strike zone, nor do I think the activist pressure would, would be as intense. And I'll get to that in a second. But you know, Andy Jassy is a first-generation Amazonian. He feels ownership over the entire thing. He started his career in the retail uh, side of Amazon, selling CDs and, and DVDs. Um, he was on on the advertising in the advertising business and marketing business, and then he was basically the founding CEO of AWS before Bezos made him CEO of the whole thing. He's much likelier to have the Bezos view that this business is stronger together. Now, the key point here is activist shareholders who are noting the huge run up in Alibaba's stock and all the excitement around the IPOs of the particular six divisions. And I think that's got to be, you know, people are noticing that. And I just do wonder if activists come to Amazon and advocate for something like this, what kind of defense that they could have after a two year period where the stock uh, performance has been so dismal. Historically, it's been Bezos, the founder, and his credibility that has protected Amazon. But with a distracted and detached Bezos, I'm not sure the defense is as strong. I don't think they're considering it to answer your question directly. I just don't feel like that's something that Aunt Jassy would want to spend time on. But the question is, if the current stock performance continues, and 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 the Alibaba split up is seen as a great success, will activists force Amazon to consider it? And I think it's possible. It's it's likely.
0: I want to move on to something that you and I were chatting about during the. Break and it's you know as hot a topic in the tech world as there is, and it's ChatGPT. Um, you mentioned OpenAI is is based right there in San Francisco. Where do you think all of this is going in the near term, the next six to twelve months? What are what are you hearing from people you talk to, and what are you going to be watching for in terms of? business achievements or milestones to give you a sense of what the next 12 months looks like for ChatGPT and AI in general?
4: I don't apologize uh, by the fact that the emergence and popularity of ChatGPT and DALI before it took me by surprise. It took the industry by surprise. Google was taken by surprise. But you know, the the attention, uh, the the hype around it has been extraordinary. So. I don't have a crystal ball. I think that very soon we're going to start to see a litany of competitive responses from the likes of Amazon uh, in terms of how you know AWS um, extends some of these capabilities to the to its customers to developers. Google I/O is coming up in the spring. I think it's going to be wholly AI focused. This is Google's conference, and we're going to see a litany of uh, announcements, and we're going to see Sundar Pichai and, and maybe what could be almost considered a job saving campaign uh, because the critics are out for him now, talking about his personal you know view and philosophy on AI and why Google is set to you know to kind of recapture the lead. Arguably, it has the deepest bench. But OpenAI really did take it by surprise. And I think we're gonna see more conversation about some of the, you know, the scary possible ethical implications of these technologies and what it means for jobs. And for society and education, <laughs> when kids are uh, have have access to uh, you know get AI to do their homework and write their papers for them, and then you know the next incarnation of of, of these things, Chat uh, GPT five. You know we we just saw GPT four just came out. Uh, um, o- subscribers to OpenAI can access it. It's a remarkable leap and and you know the next incarnation will be even more interesting so i think to me it's exciting you know it's like one of these stages in silicon valley where the tech is surprising us and forcing us to kind of reconsider our assumptions about frankly how we're doing our jobs and living our lives and you know and and what it means that this technology is now available so it's an exciting and unpredictable time
0: In addition to your reporting and writing, you are also involved uh, with the podcast Foundering, a show that takes a closer look at drama in the tech industry. Uh, Tell me about the latest season.
4: Oh yeah, thanks, Chris. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Um, we've now done four uh, seasons of Foundering. I did a season actually on Amazon, and that was season three. And and season four, we wanted to mix it up a little bit. Is the rise and fall of John McAfee, and he's you know the cybersecurity pioneer who almost invented the industry, um, you know, in the late '80s, early '90s, and then went, I would say, right off the edge into into the world of drug experimentation and violence and um, crypto scams. Uh, There was a presidential run in there. He was on the lam and then died under mysterious circumstances. So It's a wild story, and my colleagues did a great job with it.
0: You can check out The Foundering Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and Pick up a copy of Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. It is a great read and one of the best business books I've read over the last few years. Brad Stone, appreciate the time. Always great talking with you. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. Coming up after the break, Matt Argusinger and Ron Gross return. They got a couple of stocks on their radar, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money.
1: I got your picture.
0: nothing else to do. Oh, in color. Your hair is brown. just yeah. 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 As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio once again with Matt Argusinger and Ron Gross. You can hear Motley Fool Money every weekend on radio stations across America. You can also listen seven days a week on your favorite podcast app. For example, we have a conversation with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner coming up on the podcast. So Take out your phone, open up your favorite podcast app, and with one click of a button, you can follow Motley Fool Money and never miss an episode. Our email address is podcasts at fool.com. Question from Tim in Wisconsin, who writes I bought shares of Moderna in the summer of 2019 after listening to your show. I'm interested in your thoughts about continuing to hold this stock versus selling for other opportunities. What do you think, Ron?
2: Good question, Tim. Um, So, it is a recommendation in our Rule Breaker service, and that uh, recommendation is partially based on the excitement around mRNA medicines, which use the patient's own body to manufacture proteins that heal or prevent disease. And that is actually the technology that allowed them to create the COVID vaccine so quickly. Uh, They got $18 billion in cash. It will allow them to develop their 46 drugs that they have in their pipeline. But it's not all good news, because the COVID vaccine demand is significant significantly down. Um, there's going to be a 73% decline likely in revenue from that um, this year. Future revenue uh, beyond 2023 could be even less. But it's seven times earnings with strong technology, strong balance sheet, probably fine as part of a well-diversified portfolio. I just personally wouldn't want it to be an outsized position.
0: This year, Pepsi will celebrate its 125th anniversary. And as part of that, the company unveiled an updated logo this week. Pepsi will start using the new logo this fall in the U.S. and Canada, and then roll out to the rest of the world in 2024. Matt, they've been working on this for literally years. I would love to know, as a shareholder, how much money they spent on this new logo. I like it. I've seen the logo. It yeah. looks good. But if they come out and say we spent 200 million dollars developing this, I'm going to be chagrined. Well, you know, it's it's it's.
3: The, their brand is everything, and um, I have to say I like it as well. I'm a I'm much more navy blue guy than a royal blue guy, so I like that color. If I had to go Mad Men on it, I would say I don't. I think the the Pepsi name is a little too bold, uh, but otherwise, I I like it. It's probably worth every penny. I'm
2: just gonna say it's a circle, and it's red, white, and blue, and it says Pepsi. I could have gotten in that for much cheaper $10. than they paid. <laughs>
0: Next time Pepsi wants to update their logo, they should get in touch with Ron Gross. All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Matt Argusinger, you're up first. What are you looking at this week?
3: All right, I'm going with EPR Properties. The ticker is EPR. Uh, it's a real estate investment trust that focuses on experiential properties. So you got resorts, restaurants, bowling alleys. Top Golf is a major tenant. Places where people go to enjoy fun experiences. But they get 45% of their revenue, Dan, from movie theaters. And, and, by the way, one of their movie theater tenants is Regal, whose parent company just filed for banker- oh, bankruptcy. Man. So, immediately, theaters say, uh-oh, oh, they're in trouble. But it, it, not really. All the rent continues to be paid, even by Regal. This could be a record year for the box office. And, by the way, Amazon and Apple are looking to spend quite a bit of money putting out films that they want uh, to go to cinemas first. So, if you're an investor who can tolerate some risk, Dan, EPR's dividend yield is almost 9%. Ooh well covered by the company's operating cash flows balance sheets in decent shape and the other
1: parts of the business non-theater parts are doing just fine
0: dan question about epr properties
1: matt i want you to guess the last the year the last time i was in a movie theater 2019 you're correct. And okay. what movie did I see, Matt? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, I up. saw Cats, and it was terrible. <laughs> oh my God. I would
0: have never guessed Wow. That. You must have had that theater to yourself.
1: It was like a Saturday afternoon. It was empty. It was, <laughs> it was, it was, it was great and also terrible, because
2: the
0: movie is real bad. <laughs> Ron Gross, what are you looking at this week?
2: I'm looking at Wesco International, WCC, originally formed in 1922 as the in-house distribution arm of Westinghouse Electric. You remember Westinghouse. Oh, yeah. Right? Uh, leading provider of business-to-business distribution, logistics services, and supply chain solutions. Um, they're capitalizing on a lot of exciting growth trends, uh, grid modernization, green energy, automation, um, digitalization, and they're more than a typical distributor. They offer a strong service component um, to their business and to their customers. So they have those competitive advantages. They have scale, distribution, and service. Their backlog is at an all time high. Free cash flow is set to increase significantly over the years. My friends over at Value Hunter Service that we have here at the Fool thinks that it has meaningful upside at current prices.
0: Dan, question about Wesco International?
2: Not really a question,
1: Chris, (laughs) more of a comment. You know why I love it when Ron is on the show? Because he brings a company that I've never heard of, and it's huge and super important to the entire world.
0: There you go. That's that's kind of a nice thought. I can't
1: tell if he's being sarcastic. I'm not. I'm being earnest. I love it. I've never heard of this company and <laughs> it seems like they're well, if they disappeared tomorrow, a lot of businesses would be in trouble. What do you want to add to your watch list, Dan? I'll tell you what I don't want to add to my watch list, Chris, and that's movie theaters. <laughs> oh,
0: all right. That's fair. That hurts. Ron Gross, Matt Argusinger. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Yes. Drop us an email, podcasts at fool.com. That's podcasts at fool.com. Keep sending us your questions about stocks and investing. That's gonna do it for this week's Motley Full Money Radio Show. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.